the little title before verse six says, the three angels. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labour, for their deeds will follow them. And verse 14, the harvest of the earth. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple, and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the wine press outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Um, from being flippant, let's pray, and then having prayed, we're going to look at a very serious part of the Bible. But let's pray quickly before we do that. Father, we desperately need to hear your voice in such uncertain times. Think of the church under attack in France. We think of uh, Turkey and the uh, strugg struggling um, people looking for lives lost um, in an earthquake.
while there's such confusion, whether it be in the Americas and the polarity that there is between red and blue states in the week to come. We thank you that you're God over all and you're good and you're fair. And this morning, as we look at your justice as well as your love, please help us to hear what the Bible says. It's a hard teaching. So help us to see how great you are and help us to turn to you in the day of mercy. Amen. There is a film I'd like to speak to you about that I've only seen part of. It's called Avengers Endgame. Avengers Endgame. It's number 22 of 23. There's going to be more to come. But 22 of 23 existing films that make up Marvel Comic Universe. Uh, For me, not being a fan of the film or the franchise, I think it's just a money-making scheme. Um, Avengers Endgame has grossed 2.8 billion, you heard me right, $2.8 billion at the cinema. It's a money-making machine. It's a pretty good film, so my eldest daughter tells me. And in the film, it's about a huge battle. It's the forces of good. All the old characters from the preceding 21 films come and appear, and they take on the forces of evil in the most almighty cosmic battle. Death is everywhere. Evil has been ruling over uh, the known world. Half of the world has lost their lives at the hands of this evil foe. I won't tell you what happens at the end, but there's a huge battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And it's about the future of the known world. What will happen? No one knows, but it all comes down to the forces of good fighting against the forces of evil. Now, that is fiction. It's fiction that's been projected upon a big screen. But it's telling us about the end of the world in a fictional world. What will happen as good faces off against evil? But as we come to Revelation again, we move from the realm of fiction to the realm of fact, to the realm of history. That's what this passage is about. It was very hard to listen to and it's been very hard to study. And as we look at it, we need to come up against a teaching from the Bible that we faced through the seven trumpets, through the seven seals. And now as we come towards the seven bowls of the wrath of God, the anger of God. Now, the wrath of God that we've seen throughout the book of Revelation is not limited to the book of Revelation. The anger, the righteous anger, the settled anger of God against everything that is evil and sinful in the world That's been there since the beginning of the book of Genesis. God is not uh, someone who flies off the handle. He's not a sleepy cosmic uh, grandfather. But the anger of God, the wrath of God is settled, measured, controlled anger against everything that is evil and wrong in his world. But we don't like that. We like to think that God is loving. I, I, I want to understand God is loving. God is love. And God is not a God who gets angry. And we can polarize those two attributes of God's character, just as a red and a blue state is polarized in the Americas in the week to come. But let me say to you that you cannot have a loving God without God being angry at the same time. What do I mean? My tenant to you is this. If someone is really loving, then that also means that they'll get really, really angry. Loving people always get angry. When you see someone you love who's been ravaged by something, naturally you would become defensive and angry at their condition. 
when someone is destroying themselves with bad life choices, whether that's of their own making or being placed upon them, we rage and get angry against injustice. And the more we love that person and the more loving we are, the more angry we get. So we have our own anger. It's not righteous. It's not always about the right thing, but we can get angry when we see the people we love in pain or who have experienced injustice. If you don't get angry at anything, then that might show that actually you're not other-centered, you're actually very self-centered. If you never get concerned about the injustices in the world, if you never want to stand up for those that get oppressed and those who don't have a voice and those who you love, then perhaps that shows that you don't care. Perhaps that shows that you're cynical, that you've become hard-hearted. Perhaps your world has become too small. But the more loving you are, the more angry you will get about the right things. And the Bible describes God as the definition of love. He is the definition of love itself. And he demonstrates the extent of his love at the cross, where he lays down his life for the sins of the world. So you can't have one without the other. You can't say that I want only a God of love without understanding as well that because God is the God of love that he is, he's also the God who gets angry at everything that is wrong in the world. And the Bible says that's a word called wrath. God settled, measured anger against everything that is sinful and evil and wrong in the world. That's the territory that we face in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, verse 6, right the way through to the end of chapter 16. We're going to spend our time this morning just looking at the remainder of Revelation 14, verses 6 through to verse 20. And it talks, like I said, not about a fictional depiction of what the world might look like at the end, like you'd see in a Marvel film. This is talking about history. It's not even talking about uh, an exploration of the judgment of God and the anger of God as a theoretical uh, content or an idea. This is talking about an event and a day that each one of us must face. In Revelation 14, the wrath of God gets personal. The hostility of God against everything that is evil and everyone who would stand up against him gets personal and real. But that's not where the chapter begins. If you look at chapter 14, verse 6 with me, you see good news. Good news to a lost world. As we look at these verses, verses 6 to verse 13, look at the, the messages that three heralds bring. And it begins with good news. Look at verse 6. Good news from the heralds. Then I saw another angel flying in midair and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea and the springs of water. For many Christians today, Christianity can be limited to their own sphere of influence. It can be limited to their own understanding. It can be made far too small. The good news can be about my salvation. It can be about my forgiveness. It can be about my relationship with Jesus. Now, I've emphasized the my, the personal pronoun belonging to me. But do you see what I mean? The temptation is that we make salvation, God's rescue plan, all about us. It's all about what I can receive. It's about me, ultimately. And the Bible won't have any of that. As real as a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ is, 
as real as a secure heavenly reality is because of the work of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus is. That's not where it ends. John, on the back of the book of Isaiah, wants to say that the salvation that God brings, the good news that he's got for all people to hear and respond to, it's cosmic, it's global, it's huge, it's vast. It's not just about you, but you're right in the picture. What do I mean? The book of Isaiah, I think, is the, uh, the shoulders on which John stands as he writes verses 6 to verse 13 of Revelation chapter 14. In the book of Isaiah, you hear um, God speaking through this ancient prophet 800 years before the birth of Jesus. And he says, when salvation comes, it will include three things. Three things will be the uh, sign and the reality of the kingdom of God that Jesus will bring. He says, it's on the screen, your God reigns. We can see that in chapter 14. Your God reigns. That's the message that Isaiah heard and he wrote down to the exiles in Babylon. This is what it means. Your God has won the victory over the earthly superpower of the day. And now you're free to go home. One day in the future, Jerusalem will be rebuilt. But that's not all. Your God not only reigns, he's coming back. One day in the future, uh, God will return. Jesus will rule and he will reign. It may look now, whilst you're in exile, wondering what will happen. Has God forgotten you and his promises? Will they ever come to fruition? It might look as if God has left you and he's left his temple in Jerusalem and that the Babylonian army will sack it. But he will return and he will return visibly and he will turn, return in all his fullness and dwell amongst his people again because he's promised so. And not only will God return, but he will do a powerful and a public work of rescue. All the nations will see that God has saved his people from their plight. This is the good news that John is standing upon as he writes the opening section of Revelation chapter 14. This is good news, not just personally about salvation. This is good news for the whole known world. Anyone who's lived under the Babylonian Empire 800 years before the birth of Jesus or to little clusters of 10s and 20s and 30s of Christians in modern-day Turkey, the first recipients of this letter, who are living under a Babylonian-like rule, an earthly superpower that wasn't called Babylon at that time. It was now called Rome. And it's good news for Christians around the world. Evil will not have the last word. God will return, not to save, but to judge. And his justice is something that we can rely upon. God is coming back. Our God reigns and he will do a powerful work of rescue to save all those who are his and to release his judgment on the world. God's love is seen at the cross. But as the passage changes with the second angel, verse eight, God's love is also seen through his wrath, through his settled, measured, appropriate anger against everything that is wrong and evil in the world. I wanted to spend most of our time this morning thinking about the second point, the wrath of God. It's from this passage, and it's into chapters 15 and 16 as well. But look at verse 8 with me. Remember, this is written to first century Christians who were not under the heel of Babylon. That was 800 years earlier, but now they're under the heel of Rome. And so Babylon is used as a, the fancy word is a metonymy. It's a, a name of something else. Look at verse 8 with me. An angel comes, a herald comes, not with the good news of Jesus, 
but the good news of a fall, verse 8. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Here's an angel proclaiming not good news, but, but great news that uh, everyone who opposes the God of the universe has fallen. And we see a replay of this in chapter 15 with languages of plague from the Exodus and into chapter 16 as well. Everybody who set themselves up against the ruler of the world, against God and his holy ones, will be brought down low. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Now, the historical reality is that Babylon was the capital city of the Babylonian Empire, this vast superpower that existed between the Tigris and the Euphrates River in modern-day Persia, that kind of territory. It was the seat of power, and it was the seat of power that was so vast that in 587 BC it came and uh, sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. But the Bible says Babylon is not just a historical superpower, not just a historical kingdom. Babylon is used to represent any nation, ideology, person or power that sets themselves up against the loving rule of King Jesus. It's a symbol of uh, independence. It's a symbol of arrogance. So in the first century, they would have heard Babylon, but they would have known that John was describing Rome. And what will happen? There's two images that are very graphic, should grab our attention. Babylon has fallen, but then the imagery changes to describe what that will be like as the end of the world is described. In uh, the wine press and the harvest. Let's look at the wine press in chapters 12 and 13 with the idea of worshipping someone other than God. This false worship with a false trinity was described. But now the wrath of God will be poured out full strength. And that's an image that describes wine drinking, which I happen to enjoy as well. So this is very interesting to me. Verses 9 and 10, as you look at that, describes the, the winemaking process in the ancient Near East. When uh, wine was produced, it would come out at about 15% proof, something like that. And it would be diluted 1 to 10, 1 to 3 to make table wine. And that image is used by John as Jesus reveals to him the reality of the end of the world, to say, let me reveal to you, John, the strength of the judgment that will come on the last day of the world. This is the reality of the day to come. It will not be watered down. It will not be diluted. The day is coming when the wrath of God, the settled, measured, appropriate anger of God against all sin, rebellion and evil in the world, will be revealed, but it will be revealed full strength. In other words, every other time in the Bible you've seen the wrath of God revealed, that's only been partial, that's been diluted, but a day is coming when it will be full strength. So in Genesis chapter 3, when God rightly and appropriately sends out Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, that's a partial judgment from God. Also, the flood is a partial judgment from God. Also, the exodus is a partial judgment from God. Also, the exile is a partial judgment from God. But now, says John, a day is coming when the wrath of God will be revealed in full strength. It won't be watered down anymore. No diluted form. And look at the different imagery in verse 10. The language of burning sulfur, of fire. 
again in verse 10, the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. I don't think this means that people are looking on in some way as spectators, but there is enough awareness of the people under the wrath of God to know what's happening as the torment continues. Verse 11, the smoke of their torment rises for ever and forever. That's the first image of the strength, the non-diluted wrath of God. Everything in the past has been diluted. A day is coming when the wrath of God will be revealed full strength. But the second image is in verses 14 to 16, and it's not from uh, wine, but from harvest. I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Here in verse 14 is Jesus Christ, the son of man, which is Jesus' title as judge, with a sharp sickle in his hand to harvest the world. He's received message from his heavenly father on the cloud of glory to set an appointed time when harvest would come. And as sobering as this is, it does help us to understand history. History is not cyclical. History has an appointed beginning, and the Bible says it has an appointed end. It's teleological. It's the fancy word for saying it moves from one point to another, and God is in control of all things. In other words, the understanding of history is not like the Hinduist who understands, or the Hindu who understands history in a different way. A Hindu understands history is cyclical. History is repeating itself. It's not like that at all. History has an appointed beginning and as it has an appointed end. And verses 17 to 20 says that appointed end is when God's wrath will be fully and finally dealt with and dealt out. It's a, it's a violent thoroughness of the wine press. So we're back to wine production again. Again, in the first century, all the wine harvest would be taken and put into a, a big stone vat that you can see on the screen. The stone vat had a, a grooves at the bottom of it that was uh, there for the collection of the juices. The servants would take off their shoes and sandals and they would jump in and they would stomp all around the huge vat that uh, contained the harvest, the crop of wine grapes. And as they stomped around, the the wine juices would flow to the bottom of the vat and then out into collecting pots as it traveled down stone-covered ravines. And that image is taken and it's applied to the last day of history when God's wrath in full is measured out and the blood flows out to the height of a horse's bridle. It's almost to the height of a, a man's head, almost six foot high for a distance of nearly 200 miles. Now this is gruesome imagery. This is graphic imagery, so we need to take care. But this is imagery of sulfur and darkness and change. It is imagery of something and not imagery of nothing. 
So as much as we want to pull back from the reality of the wrath of God, we need to understand the imagery that is described here carefully. And I want to just park for a moment and think through some of the implications of what we've just read, because Christians have very different opinions on the reality of hell and the wrath of God. Here are four that I want to work through really quickly. Some people say, well, it's unloving for Christians to talk about hell at all. We shouldn't be speaking about it. And let me tell you about a lady I saw in the newspaper this week. There's a lady who uh, was up in Hounslow, and up in Hounslow, the town uh, council, the local authority have designated a road um, with a new uh, no entrance to cars sign. And on this pixelated picture, you can see bottom right hand corner, there's a lady with a homemade board stopping cars. And this red one, if you watch the video on the Daily Mail, the car stopped having seen the warning. They turned around and they retreated and saved themselves 130 pounds. 130 pounds is the fine that the local council at Hounslow have introduced if you go down this certain road and ignore the warnings that this lady has put up then you will have that fine charged to your bank account. Now, that's a silly example to say, if it's important for this lady to do her uttermost to warn her fellow drivers of an injustice about the change of Hounslow's uh, road routes, it's not um, anything other than loving for Christians to talk of hell. It's only unloving for Christians to talk about hell if it's not true. If it's not true, then it's the most unloving thing we can do. But if hell is true, and if the wrath of God is real, then warning people of the wrath to come as untrendy and as unfashionable, as unpalatable as it is, is the most loving thing we can do. But we must speak wisely. We must speak biblically. We must speak carefully. But speak we must of the wrath to come, the wrath of God. Other people say it's not loving, but other people say it's manipulative. You shouldn't be speaking about hell, but it's manipulative. You're trying to strong arm people into understanding Christianity. You're trying to scare people. It's the wrong emphasis, speaking of hell and wrath. I don't think it is scaremongering, and I certainly don't think it's manipulation. Because of what Jesus said, the wrath of God is spoken some 600 times in the Bible as a whole. And the person that speaks most often of hell is Jesus. Matthew 10, 28 says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other places, he talks about hell being a plain or place of chains and outer darkness, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, Jesus didn't pull back from describing the love of God, but also the reality of the wrath of God. He didn't pull back from describing heaven being with God and hell all the uh, sinful consequences of rejecting God's loving rule. And neither should we. It's not unloving and it's not manipulative to speak of hell. But how long would hell last for? It's uh, a big word. It's annihilation. What about annihilation with a question mark? Is hell eternal or is it only for a limited period, limited period of time? Now, there are many Christians who I love and respect who I disagree with on this. I think there are enough clues to say that hell is not a short-term thing. Experiencing the wrath of God is not a short-term reality. There are some Christians who believe that the Bible teaches that people go to hell and having experienced the wrath of God for a short period of time, and then they experience it no more. 
But I think there's enough clues from the Bible and from our passage and from the book of Revelation to say that's not the case. I think the reality of hell, as painful as it is, and as biblically as it's described, is that it's not a short-term thing. I think it's forever. Look at verse 11 in chapter 14 with me. The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. That same phrase is used in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, forever and ever. In uh, almost the last pages of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 11, there's a very interesting phrase as heaven is described. It says this, let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. Let him who is holy continue to be holy. And what that passage appears to say in Revelation chapter 22 is that as people move into a new heavens and a new earth, in principle, you remain the people that you were already. So if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, forgiven at the cross, that means that as you move into the reality of a new heavens and a new earth, you move into that new glorious reality, seeing Jesus face to face, being with God and knowing him perfectly, knowing the blessing of a new life. You know all of that reality without any of your past struggles for sin, that the one who is righteous be righteous still. That's the reality of the future in heaven. Or you move to the reality of hell, where it says, let him who is filthy be filthy still. It's not as if you turn over a new leaf. It's not as if you have regret. That's the fourth objection people have. They say, I want to go to hell because that's where the fun is. I want to go to hell because that's where all my friends are. Let me tell you, there are no friends in hell. There are no people who say, I'm glad to be here in hell. Hell is full of people who don't want to be there. Hell is full of people who refuse still to bow the knee to King Jesus. It's full of people who hate God. It's full of people who despise the cross. It's full of people who hate each other. And there's an endless cycle of self-centered sin, rebellion and its consequences. It's horrendous. They hate the light of heaven because their deeds are evil, says another part of the Bible. And so unbelievers... They respond, chapter 16, verse 9, chapter 16, verse 11, chapter 16, verse 21. They refuse to repent. They refuse to glorify God. They refuse to say sorry for what they've done. There's no repentance in hell. And I believe there's enough evidence in the Bible to say that hell is not a short-term thing. The wrath of God is known for all eternity, as is the blessing of God in heaven. And that's what the Bible says. And I plead with you this morning, if you're not a Christian, I reiterate what the Bible says. Flee from the wrath to come. Flee from the measured, settled, appropriate justice of God against all sin and every sinner, all evil and every evildoer. Flee from the wrath to come before finally the last day the last day that's the last thing i want us to think about there's a cycle of warning that we've seen throughout the book of revelation of the seven seals the seven trumpets the seven signs and the seven bowls that we see in chapters 15 and 16 chapter uh, 16 verses 1 to 12 you see the language of exodus and plagues again 
chapter 16, verses 13 to 16, you see the demons, the demonic world, gathering all the powerful ones of the world to fight against God and the holy angels. And chapter 16, verse 18, you see this cataclysmic judgment that's released, this great earthquake, the like of which the world has never seen again, against Babylon the Great, every human power and ideology and authority and identity that stood against God and against his loving rule is brought down low. And there's a voice that cries out in Revelation chapter 16, verse 18, these three lovely words, it is done, it's finished. There's this huge pronouncement in heavens that every evildoer has been dealt with and God and his holy ones have been uh, seen for who they are and their glorious goodness and purity and perfection and holiness. It is done. It's finished. It's the, the uh, trumpet sound at the end of history as Jesus returns to rule and to reign, having judged those who oppose his loving rule and reign. But that cry, it is done, is not just heard here. It's heard by King Jesus from his lips on the cross 2,000 years ago. Someone cried out the very same words that will be heard at the end of history. It is done, cried Jesus, as he died, hanging outside the city walls of Jerusalem, bearing upon his shoulders the wrath of God for my sin and for your sin as well. Jesus will return, not to save others, but to complete his justice, to complete his judgment. Salvation was finished at the cross, but his judgment will be completed when he returns. Let me tell you, the cross of Jesus makes absolutely no sense if there is not a future judgment that we need saving from. Did you hear me? The cross makes no sense unless there's a future judgment we need saving from. Two quick examples and then we'll close. One of my professors at seminary used this example. Imagine you're standing by some good friends and it's bonfire night, just a few days time on the 5th of November. There are fireworks in the sky and there's a wonderful bonfire. Imagine there's a friend next to you as you stand there with your marshmallows and socially distanced cocoa and all that stuff. And your friend says to you, let me show you how much I love you. Let me show you how much I love you. And then they run and throw themselves on the fire and they die. Would you say, behold, see how much that person loved me? You wouldn't say that at all. You'd say, why did they do that? Were they okay? Was there something going on in their heart and mind that I didn't know about? Why did they do that? I loved them. Someone running and jumping onto a fire does not show you how much they love you. It would give you great concern for their mental well-being. But imagine your house is on fire. Imagine your house is on fire and you escape, but you're unable to save your child who remains in the house. And imagine that same friend who didn't go and jump in on the fire, but that same friend says, I'm going to show you how much I love you. And they run in, they save your child, your son or your daughter. They rescue them from the fire that you can see, but you've been able to save them from. And in the process of that, they die themselves. Surely you would say, I will never doubt how much my friend loves me. I can see they've shown me how much they've loved me by rescuing a loved one from the fire that I couldn't. If Jesus Christ died on the cross when we were not in any trouble, 
it would be a horrendous loss of life. If we didn't have the wrath of God upon us, we would think that Jesus, this historical reality, is mad or crazy or worse. But he was not mad or crazy. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, knew the fire of the wrath of God that would be put upon anyone who says no to his loving rule, to every evil doer, to everyone who has sin in their hearts like me and like you too as well. But Jesus says, see how much I love you. I will run in to the house of God's wrath, as it were, and I will save you from the wrath to come. And he showed his love by dying on the cross 2,000 years ago. On the cross, Jesus Christ said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. On the cross, Jesus says, it is finished, paid in full, it's done. He was drinking the cup of God's wrath, full strength, down to its dregs. And that's why we can say that Jesus and God his Father is equally loving and equally just at the same time. The cross of Jesus is where the love of God and the wrath of God is most clearly seen. Only if you see Jesus, not just as loving, but as wrathful. Only if you see how great his anger is, his appropriate, measured, settled anger as an appropriate response to our sin. Only when you see that will you see the magnitude of his love for you. There was a film that came out. You can see it on the screen in 2008. It said, seeking a friend for the end of the world. Revelation 14 to Revelation 16 says, the end of the world is coming and you need a friend to survive it. And his name is Jesus. For he will complete his judgment as he has completed his salvation. Run to him for safety. Run to him to safety today. We're going to sing now of uh, a song that uh, really encapsulates the hope for every Christian. It's called In Christ Alone. And after we've sung this, I'll pray to close the service.